This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Well, the show goes on here on the Blood Red channel. We are back with the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I'm Guy Clark. Alongside me, our Liverpool correspondent, Paul Gorse, our chief LFC writer, Ian Doyle, and Theo Squires also along for the ride with that beard still very much intact. Gentlemen, how are we all? Gorse, I'll start with you. How are you keeping? Fine. Another another week of lockdown. Is this week seven or week eight? Not really sure. Um, I think it's a Monday, but, but uh, just getting on with it now, aren't we? Yeah, I know it's a Monday, but in terms of weeks, I think I lost count at about four. Doily, how yeah. are you? I'm okay. I think it's only week six, so you, you can't go wish the weeks away. We've got a long way to go yet. We certainly do. And even six weeks in, we've already mentioned, I should mention your facial hair, actually, Doily, looking like our very own Des Lynham, but uh, trying to rival <laughs> Theo Squires. Theo, how are you? I was fine until I just realised you don't know my job title. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, I'm not even going to pretend to lie. <laughs> Introduce yourself then, Theo. What do you want to go as? I don't know my job title. It's fine, man. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Great start here then on the pod. Today we've got plenty coming up. We've some breaking news to get into right from the top. Also, the Premier League look as though they're setting out somewhat of a timetable report from the Times. We will delve into that and highlight the key dates for you before in the second half of the pod we get into who is the boss of all of the Liverpool bosses, who is perhaps the greatest of Liverpool's managers throughout the ages and where in that does Jurgen Klopp sit. But mention the breaking news. Gorsty comes straight to you and uh, yeah, it's pretty significant as well. Yeah, so Liverpool have announced today that they are pausing their Anfield expansion plans by at least 12 months. Um, plan of permission was hoped to be submitted to the Liverpool City Council around about now. I think they Liverpool uh, slated it as the springtime, so I suppose that would be around about now. Um, and they were hopeful of um, starting proceedings on, on the expansion in December. So that's all now been paused by 12 months at the, the least, Liverpool say. So... Um, what they're hoping now is it'll take 18 months to complete and they don't really want to be doing a Jordan football season. So um, with the calendar turned on a tear, the Chelsea's due to the coronavirus pandemic, they just decided to uh, place a big pause on it all and, and reconvene in a year's time. So what will happen now is hopefully Liverpool will be able to unveil their new Anfield Road stand with 7,000 extra seats in the summer of 2023 as opposed to the summer of 2022. But... Um, other than that, everything is still sort of um, in line. Liverpool are hopeful that it will just be a, a, a postponing of a year, and it won't be there won't be too many more bumps in the road. Other than that, um, so it's probably a, a wise decision rather than hoping to carry it on and maybe a, you you complete things, you know, 14, 15 months down the line. It's probably better just to just to put a big pause on everything at the moment because everything's so uncertain. We don't know when the football is going to return. We don't know when Melwood's going to reopen at all up in the air, isn't it? So it's probably a sensible decision. Um, but Liverpool are now going to have to wait uh, wait their turn until Anfield goes up to 61,000. I suppose that's the key word, is pause rather than a halt of proceedings. It is obviously going to be getting completed, getting done. But obviously the situation we find ourselves in, probably not the wisest time to, to crack on with it all. So therefore just pressing the pause button and putting it back by 12 months. It just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean... If Liverpool were the tired to carry it on, I mean, we don't know when construction work is going to be able to to begin. Liverpool have already fallen far up that avenue with the news just over a month ago that the brand new training base in Kirby was going to be, um, well, basically the work on that was going to come to a halt. I think it's 
McLaughlin and Harvey, the name of the construction company there. Um, so no one's working on that. Liverpool are hopeful of opening that in pre-season, but that's obviously going to be knocked on the head for for a while yet. And the pool will continue using Melwood. So I suppose um, with with all the uncertainty surrounding so many different aspects of of the football business um, on and off the pitch, I think it does make sense just to say we'll uh, we'll move everything back a year. Everything is still in place. It's just put just moved back twelve months if that makes sense. So the plan of permission will go in and about a year's time. Construction will hopefully begin in December next year, and um, they will, will hopefully uh, unveil that new stand in the summer of 2023. And Doyle, I suppose with Anfield, it's been something that's been going on for ever so long now, even sort of 15, 20 years of talk of a new stadium or expanding Anfield. It just seems to sort of be another one of those setbacks in terms of actually getting it completed. I don't think it's the same as the other setbacks, though. I don't think, you know, it's not FSG's fault this has happened. And I don't think they had any other option but to make the decision that they made. And at least they've made it quite early, to be honest. I mean, they haven't, you know, they've bought themselves quite a lot of time to see what exactly, as Gorsi says, what actually does happen in terms of everything being uncertain at the moment. You know, there's, there's the stuff, as again, as Gorsi said about, you know, the uh, Kirby, the new training facility. We're not sure when that's going to be finished now, but at least Liverpool have the option of staying at Melwood. And I think the other thing as well from, from the FSG, uh, announcement or to be read from it is that they didn't want to do any work during the season which is why they could have possibly put it back for about three or four or five months but that meant they would have been doing work when the fans were going there and whether that would have impacted on well it would have impacted on their experience of going to the game but whether it meant that there were some seats that would have been unavailable for a certain amount of time and it could have hit you know let's be honest fsg in the pocket and a lot of the decisions quite rightly as a business is to, is to do with with money so there is probably a little bit of that aspect but Overall, I don't think there's anything for Liverpool fans to be worried about. I'm sure, you know, FSG do have still have their critics, you know, rightly so in terms of people, you know, staying on top of what they're doing and someone questioning whether or not this is them seeing this as an opportunity to, you know, take stock and go, well, hang on, we don't need to spend this £60 million on this stand and we'll just see what happens in the next year or so. But I don't think it's that. Um, it got through the two planning consultations. They've about to put, as Gorsi said, some plan- the planning permission in. And I still think that's what will happen. There's not been no reason uh, other to you know other than that to to say that. Um, the only thing that might change is if you know the, the actual disruption from what's been happening at the moment goes on to such an extent that quite a lot is disrupted, and then they have to make another decision further down the line. Yeah, I suppose Theo, that's the best case scenario we're in in terms of all of this. That actually FSG have moved quickly and swiftly in terms of detailing exactly sort of how how long this is going to be pushed back and the it will obviously all be completed in the end. Yeah, definitely. Like when it was decided that they wanted to expand again after the success of the main stand, that it was always going to be that they want to get the best decision for the football club. And if it takes a bit more time, it doesn't really matter. Like Anfield is still a very good stadium now. And Liverpool fans, I think they'll just be happy watching football. Like they're going to obviously have to have this break now when football does resume. We don't know if fans are going to be allowed in the stadium for however long with it being behind closed doors. It's not really a decision you can make early doors to say, right, we're going to do this and then have to change it again. It makes much more sense to just leave it a bit more open for the time being and then reassess when the time does come. Obviously, um, when we're moving along a bit, you're going to have the disruption of the World Cup mid-season as well when building work's being done. So they can play with that. And when you don't know when the season's going to start, it just makes it a lot easier for them to get everything in order and decide what they're going to do. 
Yeah, it certainly does. We'll head over to the Liverpool Echo. Plenty more reaction over there, of course, to this news then. The FSG announcing that the Anfield Road stand redevelopment at Anfield will be pushed back by 12 months. But also, lads, we best get into sort of the latest that's affecting the whole of the Premier League. Of, of course, the ongoing situation we find ourselves in. Uh, a report published by the Times uh, today, Monday, that uh, there is government... I suppose pressure of wanting to get the clubs back into action, Doyle, and setting out actually the the timetable in which this may happen. Well, I'm not sure pressure is the right word. I think they're quite keen for things to be, you know, to to, to for the to be a planning place. And it's not just with football. I mean, the whole thing is to do with all the sports. You look at rugby, you know, cricket, Formula One. I would imagine Theo would be quite pleased to see that start uh, <laughs> soon. I suspect or July at any rate. Um, I think it's because the message it sends out that this is this would be the country moving forward, like trying to get back to some sense of normality. I mean, how normal it can be when we're expecting no fans to be at any of these events, whether it's football or rugby or whatever. I don't know, but it will give people something to talk about. And for all the talk of people, I know we we were fell into a rabbit hole, didn't we, on the last uh, podcast when we, we started talking about this, so I won't go on about that again. But it's prudent for people to start planning for when we come out the other side or start to come out the other side of this so they can take advantage of, of the time that they're, they're then given. And I think I don't see anything wrong in all the sports and the government and everybody getting together and going, right, when we can do this, because it's still a case of when. They still don't know when exactly it's going to be, when they will be allowed to, you know, the, the, the restrictions are, are lifted enough for football clubs to go back to full training. But now, as you said, the, the Times did the piece, they reckon that, Everybody's working to the basis that they might go back into full training in about three weeks, I think it is. And then, you know, from the a couple of weeks ago, we did a story didn't we, on the, the the Premier League. The suggestion was that they wanted to restart on June the eighth, and that seems to fall in line with what's being said. And you look at other countries, you know, uh, the Bundesliga looks though it might be starting on May the ninth, I think it is. And then the interesting one for me actually was the one in Italy, which Italy's obviously been the worst affected country out of anyone in Europe, and they they obviously had to deal with the, the coronavirus epidemic first. And they have now been given the go-ahead to Serie A clubs to resume training very shortly in the and to start their season on June the 2nd, which would be the, the week before the, the Premier League season might resume. I mean, like in England, there'll be no fans there. But I think there's now, well, always since the start, there's been this you know suggestion that everybody's unified over, you know, committed to resuming the season and there was always one or two or three or four clubs, London clubs, West Ham and Tottenham, basically, then uh, looking to attempt to avoid the season or cancel it as such for their own ends. I think people have started coming around to the fact that perhaps it will restart and whether or not it gets all the way through to the end, I don't know, because that's that'll be another thing that we'll be talking about when it does start. But for now, it does look as though you know, Liverpool and all the other Premier League teams will certainly be coming back to training at some point next month. Yeah, and Gorsley, on a few of the dates, and Arsenal actually going back to London Colney, their training ground today, obviously doing yeah. individual training and keeping up that social distancing. But a couple of the, the key dates, Doyle mentioned there, the 8th of June sort of being looked at as the date to start this sort of eight-week period, I think it is, of trying to get the, the last 92 games uh, to sort of get completed. But on Friday as well, the 1st of May, there's going to be a meeting that I suppose will be quite interesting to see how it sort of plays out in terms of the contracts that will expire on the 30th of June and also the transfer window because we've spent a lot of time actually talking about transfers and everything, but no one really knows exactly how sort of the windows and everything are going to play out. 
Yeah, it's, it's going to be a really interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I think when the, the Premier League clubs met uh, two weeks ago, there was just a, a real determination just to reiterate that they want the season finished without offering too much in the way of the, the logistics and the tacticalities of a, how all this was going to be completed. But I think that just bought themselves a little bit of time to to thrash it all out a little bit more. So hopefully on Friday we might have a little bit more in that same direction as to what happens next. And uh, the contracts and the transfer window is an interesting one because it's one of the things that just hasn't gone away, has it? You know, despite the uncertainty of so much of it, the transfer room has continues rumbling on and Liverpool are being linked with player X and player Y and, and so is pretty much every other Premier League club. But the reality is clubs probably aren't going to be spending that much anyway when the window opens, whenever that may be. And at the moment, we don't know when that's going to be because the season, as Doyle says, if the season does begin on June 8th, then the transfer window technically will have already been open a week. So does that mean the players can sign then and play in the Premier League this season? It's, it's not going to happen, is it? So there's going to be some sort of, there's going to have to be some sort of reform coming out from the football authorities in this country to say what's going to happen with transfers, what's going to happen with players' contracts. We know Adam Lallana, his contract's up um, this summer. So um, th- does it become a, a situation where it's just like a rolling week-to-week thing until the end of the season? But then you get into contract law, which is a, a wider thing um, in the UK, and it, it's all very difficult to to uh, to understand and get your head around. So hopefully when the Premier League clubs do reconvene on Friday and they come out to that meeting, we'll have a little bit more... Uh, specifics and a few more details over how they do plan to to crack on with this Premier League season and get it finished. Yeah, I, interesting. I think matters are coming into focus a little bit regards dates because with UEFA saying that they want to play the last remaining rounds of the Champions League in or the August or the, and the Europa League as well, kind of suggests that they want the, all the leagues finished around about the first week or the first couple of days of August. I mean, I'd just be of the opinion, I reckon, that the, the transfer window will just be August, full stop, that's it. That's what I think. I mean, t- clubs will be able to talk. They, they just talk all the time. It's just a matter of getting the deals done. And, you know, there won't be that many teams who are in Europe, still in Europe, certainly by the end of the second week, because I think they'll be down to the semi-finals by then. So, you know, one or two clubs might be a little bit, you know, not put out, but you know, Liverpool aren't involved in that now. So it, won't, it probably won't be an issue for them and possibly any of the players that they're trying to sign. So I think... In the next couple of weeks, things will start to become a bit more clear. And then people will start looking towards next season, which I know that we've been trying not to do that because for obvious reasons. But you know, if they can start that season in September, I know the date actually says, didn't it, August the 22nd for the start of the Premier League season, which seems very, very soon to, to me. But if it's done, you know, the started by September, then I would imagine the transfer window would, would have been shut. They've drawn a line under this season and they can just crack on with see what happens next season. I think I saw one report that said the window might even just stay open from the start of next season through to January and then they'd close it after January. But it's a weird one as well because if you had it open when this season is still going on, you're going to have some players that technically can't move because like the FIFA rules say they can only play for two clubs, can't they, in a season. So say like, um, let's pick uh, Rian Brewster, someone like that. Well, if he's come back from Swansea, he can't go on loan anywhere else if we're still in this weird mixed period it's the same for any other player that's uh, like spent the second half of the season on loan because they've already played for two clubs so they're in limbo and with contracts expiring it means free agents if they've been that the end of their contract they're in limbo so it's definitely going to be have to they have to finish this season before they can even start to look at next season transfers and everything and then the dates well it's a hard one to pick when you don't know what situation you're going to be in like 
No, we've spoken about all the other sports. Formula One have said behind closed doors for a first few races, and then they'll be looking to travel again in the autumn. You think well, the European games and stuff, that's sort of similar, but it's a big ask to say, right, you can have fans attending games again, but not only attending games, traveling all over the continent, all over the world. It's still very much up in the air. And fair play to him for making these decisions, but it wouldn't be surprised if that's change him again when it comes to it. That's to do with testing, though, isn't it, as well? If, if, if by then the people can be tested, say European fans, if they're aboarding an official flight wanting to go to this game or getting allowed anywhere near the stadium, then did get you know tested one way or another. So, and I was still, as Steve said, we're still a long way from that. So we just have to wait and wait and see what happens. Although, of course, Steve mentioned about the, the transfer window staying open. That's what it used to be like. It used to be that. Yeah. It used to be open all season anyway until I think it was you know, the third, third Thursday of March or whatever it was. So that wouldn't be anything new. And I suppose that would, that would be a way around it as long as, you know, Steve said about clubs being aware of the fact that the certain players will only be able to play for two separate teams during the course of a season. Yeah, it is interesting because I'm pretty sure Hakim Ziyech, who's signing from Ajax to Chelsea, has said over the weekend that he still expects his move to go through on the 1st of July, which does seem bonkers in, in terms of he could play a big part in Chelsea's end of end of this season. We'll have to see how that plays out. But, of course, I suppose one thing that will help the Premier League and help Liverpool on that front, if the transfer window to were to run normally in Europe and finish on the 31st of August, is that before all of this did happen, of course, Premier League had voted to go back into sort of uniform with the other European leagues in terms of the transfer window. So if it would finish at the end of August, they wouldn't sort of be badly affected because we're looking at this revised timetable and the off-season could be anywhere from one week to four weeks. Yeah, I mean, players, players don't have much time off as it is, do they? I think, you know, Cox uh, always making the point about Savio Mane, who one year played an entire calendar year of football. So I think... Um, Players get three weeks off at the most, and then you, you're factoring in the European Championships next summer, and uh, the African Cup of Nations is, is still scheduled to be on, isn't it, in February? So, um, football's calendar is going to be really strange for the next year or so, and I think it's just a, a case of making the best of what is essentially an unprecedented situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be a difficult one for the players because you don't get. As I say, we don't, they don't get much time off as it is, but they're probably going to have even less before they're back in training, pre-season training, and then the new season goes again. So um, I think we might see some um, some possible usage from Klopp with the, with the warm weather training camps, as he likes to do. He, he decided against it this season, but uh, I think he's done it about four, four or five times since he's been at Liverpool, so he might be able to try and squeeze that in a, a couple of points um, next season. But... It's um, it, it's going to be really strange. What like what are we on now? Um, four or five months minimum for for the whole of the football calendar, and then it's just a case of coming out of that weird period that we're in, and, and hopefully, um, not everything hasn't been too badly affected. But it's just a case of for that for that from a Liverpool perspective anyway, of just making sure that this season does reach the conclusion that that, uh, that all the supporters want. But yeah, it's um. It's, a, it's an unprecedented time and it's going to be a really strange few months ahead, I think. Will players even need a full pre-season? Because you think uh, mm-hmm. normally when they have the close season, they can go off on holiday, enjoy the sun and just relax. Well, they're not going to be able to do that this year. 
And what they're currently doing training-wise is what? A bit of stretching and stuff like that. They can't do too much ball work. Well, that's what they'd be normally doing in their close season anyway. So you could almost say this is their recuperation time. They're not going to have to worry about international tournaments for another 12 months. So they could be in very good physical condition. We've only got a few weeks left of the season when we do get back to it. Are they going to want another like two months off from the season? You could probably turn it around and have it like sort of a winter break length of time just in summer and then go again straight off the back of it to try and get it back in line to our normal timings. I think I think if they are given a kind of mini pre-season before the return of the Premier League, then that might even act as, as a as a pre-season warm-up that, that you normally have in, in July anyway. So maybe that's an option. Because the, the irony of taking the winter break this year is that uh, that round of games, Liverpool might have won the league by now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I suppose one thing, though, that some clubs will be looking at, and but but I imagine it won't happen. You alluded to it before, uh, in terms of warm weather camps and things, is pre-season tours where clubs look to go and out to, to different climates and see fans that don't often get to, to games. I suppose, Dooley, we're probably not looking at any, and not just Liverpool, but across the board, really, pre-season tours being a thing. No, there's absolutely no chance any of them are going to happen. No chance. I'd be amazed if any of them do, to be honest. So imagine how much has to change between now and then. Basically, it's May next week. It's May this week, at the end of this week. So, you know, most of the clubs start going away mid-July. So it's only 10 weeks off, 10, 11 weeks. Well, is it? Yeah, 10, 11 weeks. So... Now, I can't see the tours. I think I agree with what Theo said about they don't really need a, a big break because while they probably aren't thinking that it's a break, at least now is a break from the you know, the, the treadmill of playing one game every three days and all the pressure that's come with that. So this is, in that sense, that's been good. It, they've obviously had different pressures with dealing with lockdown and isolation and, and not knowing what's going on from one day to the next. But once they get out there... I don't think the players will want a break either. Having waited this long to play a game, the last thing they'll want is, right, have another two months off. They'll be like, no. But don't forget, we know Liverpool are out of Europe. So if the Premier League does go to the way we think and they don't start again until September, in terms of games, Liverpool have another month off games. So unlike most Premier League teams will, because I think it was it City United and uh, Wolves are the only three teams that are still left in Europe. So And Wolves play I United, th- I think. Wolves play United, do they? Yeah, I thought so in the the, the draw yeah, for the real. Right. I, I might be completely wrong with that. They have, they, I mean, they've both got to play the second legs, haven't they? So, I mean, I'm, I don't know is the honest answer there. At least that would save a bit of travelling, if it was true. Um, but yeah, so I think it's, I don't think the players will want to break. I think the clubs won't want one either. I think they'll just want to crack on and you know just, just, just make up for the last time. No, I think I'm completely wrong about the the Wolves Man United thing. I think I think the lack of football for so long has just completely got to me. But I suppose that is one thing we are all just wanting the football to come back, and that even from the top, just to to round things off, Theo was one of the things that the government are sort of talking about in terms of it being a motivational thing for people to just have something to do. Because if we have this eight week period of football on wall to wall, even if it is behind closed doors, I suppose you're going to get people wanting to stay inside to watch all the action. Yeah, especially if they're going to be televising every game. It's just something to do. Like you can have a beer or whatever at home watching the football. And it's a distraction, isn't it? Like the government, rightly or wrongly, have been using sport as a distraction um, throughout this whole process. But whilst that's been negative headlines, this is something that can just be a positive headline for people to get behind and just almost go back to normality. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Let's move in to something different. Over the course of the weekend, there was a, a poll going round about 
greatest British managers of all time. And here on the, the Blood Red podcast, we're going to do our own thing with it and talk about Liverpool's greatest managers of all time. Of course, there's, there's the likes of Bill Shankly, Bob Paisley, Kenny Dalglish, Joe Fagan, of course, winning a European Cup, as well as the more recent managers as well. And just wonder where perhaps Jurgen Klopp does fit in to all of that. But Gorsty, I'll come to you first. And when you hear that phrase, greatest Liverpool manager of all time, who's the first name that, that springs to your mind? Uh, it depends who you ask, isn't it? Because I think, obviously, Bill Shankly is revered for, for so many things. Basically, taking Liverpool from second division also runs you know, the, the best team in, in the country. But um, I think I think Bob Paisley gets overlooked, to be honest. I mean, he, he won more trophies than Shankly. It was 19 trophies in, in nine years, uh, three European Cups. Um I often think he kind of goes under the radar because of what Shankly meant with uh, so much of his of his character and his personality and how it kind of meshed with the the, the mind state of the people on my side at the time. So for me, I'd, I'd probably say it'd have to be Paisley. Obviously, Shankly is, is the iconic name, isn't he? But um, I think by the time Jürgen Klopp hangs it all up, he'll have been at Liverpool for nine years, um, looking like he's going to add a Champions League, a Premier League title to that Champions League. And the club's first ever uh, Club World Cup, which um, I think shouldn't be overlooked too much or, or dismissed too readily. Liverpool have never won it before, and it's a, it's viewed outside of um, Europe as a, you know a, quite a big crown. So um, who knows where Klopp could uh, could feature along alongside the Pantheon, Pantheon the Greats? But for me, it's it's probably got to be Paisley, hasn't it? Yeah, well, certainly a guy who delivered six league titles and three league cups in that time. But I suppose one thing for, for Bill Shankly, I I always feel doily that gets overlooked, is the fact that he delivered the club's first FA Cup. Because as much as I wasn't about in 1965, and, and neither were yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, you me. yeah, I was going to say, yeah, neither were you. <laughs> it is a trophy that actually, now whilst it's probably pushed down in terms of the significance of it, Liverpool were at the time derided for not being able to win that tournament. Oh, yeah. I mean, at the time, you've got to bear in mind that the FA Cup was the only game that was ever on television. So if you reach the FA Cup, live, I mean, if you reach the FA Cup final, the whole of the country is to sit down and watch it. And Liverpool had got there, I think the previous time was in 1950, and they'd lost to some London team called Arsenal 2-0. Um, and then they ended up playing Leeds in 65. And they were known as a bit of an unlucky team, Liverpool, in the sense they were getting to semi-finals and losing, so they get to the final and losing. And it was regarded at the time as some kind of, you know, jinx, bit like, can you think of any other trophy at the moment that Liverpool are suffering from a bit of a jinx from? Anyway, um, so for Liverpool to win it then, bear in mind that when Shankly took over, Liverpool were in the second division, had been in the second division for quite some time, I think it was five years, took them a couple of years to get out of it. Within two years, he'd won the league. The following year, he won the FA Cup. And the following year after that, he won the league again. Then he rebuilt another team. He went seven years without winning a trophy, which now that would be almost impossible for any manager at any club to do that, at any leading club, I should say, to do that. And then he wins the league, he wins them the first European trophy with the UEFA Cup, and then he wins another FA Cup. So with with Shankly, it is more, though, about what he, you know, he transformed the club from, I mean, at the turn of the century, and I'm talking the turn of the 20th century, Liverpool were one of the biggest teams. They won the league a couple of times. They won it again in the in the 40s after the war. Um, so it's not as if success wasn't new to Liverpool, but They'd fallen behind Everton, who ended up being, you know, the, the school of science and all that. The Mersey Millionaires, they were known for, for splashing the money in the 60s. And, you know, Shankly got older, Liverpool turned them around, turned them into a club that could compete with Everton, then could compete with anybody in England and then anybody in Europe. So 
he laid the foundations of the modern Liverpool. In terms of other managers, other ones who've had the same kind of effect on the club, you'd have to say Kenny Dalglish because of what, not so, even so much about what he won with the club as a manager. I think it was three leagues, uh, two FA Cups, and in his second stint, a League Cup. But it was the fact, obviously, with what happened, he, he took over literally about two days after, or a couple of days after what happened at Heisel. And he had to, you know, guide the club through Hillsborough. And that's why he's got such a, a strong connection with the city. I mean, you only have to talk to Everton fans as well. They feel exactly the same. So it's almost as though he's forgotten about a little bit as a manager because he's such a massive icon for the club and the city as a whole. He kind of stands above all of that. And then, you know, we, of course, he said Bob Paisley. If you just look at the numbers, he was, uh, you know, he, he won the first European Cup, won another two, won a UEFA Cup. Won all those leagues. Didn't win an FA Cup though, so that jinx was still there to to a certain degree. Uh, I think he won two or three league cups. Three league cups, wasn't it? Three league cups. So in terms of pure silverware, you'd have to say he's the best. But then you bring it to the present day. Which which managers have won the European Cup? Benitez, uh, Joe Fagan, and now Jurgen Klopp as well. I mean, if Jurgen Klopp lasts the full distance of his contract and wins a couple more big trophies, you'd have to say he's possibly alongside Shankly and Paisley and Dalglish at the top. They would be the main the main four with Benitez and Joe Fagan just a little bit underneath. I mean, I wouldn't mind saying just a little bit on Brendan Rodgers, who I think if he'd have been Liverpool manager in the next three or four years, he'd have probably been amazing. But he was the right man to a certain degree at the wrong time because he was right to, you know, I think... FSG wanted to bring somebody young in straight from the off when they got rid of Hodgson and Douglas was only meant to be there for, for the, the remainder of that first season but he connected so well with the fans as for the reasons I've just explained that they went well after keeping and they kind of you know they'll still argue it was against their better judgments even though Liverpool did win the League Cup and get to an FA Cup final because they ended up finishing was it seventh or eighth and you know didn't didn't particularly perform particularly well and then Rodgers got hold of them and he sent them on the way to where they've gone now but as I say, for for Brendan Rodgers, he was too it was it was too early for him in his career. And it's, as I've said on a podcast, I think it was a couple of months ago, that if Liverpool were looking for a manager now at the end of the season, say Klopp went, and somebody said Brendan Rodgers, everybody'd be like, "Yeah, brilliant, great idea." But you know, it's one of those. It is it is about being the right man at the right time. And you'd say Shankly was, Dalglish was, Paisley was, and Klopp is Klopp is proven to be that. I think I think Rodgers is kind of. Had his reputation sullied a little bit because he was losing his way at a time, and the internet memes were were, were going mad. Weren't they? It seemed to be the the new craze at the time to to just kind of take the mic online, and and Rogers suffered with that because of it. Because that 2013-14 season was, was some of the best football I've ever seen the Liverpool play, and him so close to winning the title. Rogers was obviously the manager at the time. Since he's left Liverpool, he, well, I know we left Celtic. Midway through that season, but he pretty much won nine trophies with them in, in three years, didn't he? Treble, treble. And look, he's got less than third at the moment. So they're going to be in the Champions League next season, probably, if, if it all finishes off. Um, so for me, he's he's the best British manager. So I think sometimes he, his reputation is a little bit unfair among some Liverpool fans, but um, I, I thought it, it still do think he's a fantastic manager. There's one manager we haven't even mentioned, and that's Gerard Helier. And he was the one who dragged Liverpool into the 21st century, for example. He, he was the one that, you know, he got rid of the old the old ways. He, he, was un, he was unfortunate in the way that 
he took over a club that was still stuck in the 1980s and he was trying to bring him to the 2000s and you know right he took over from Roy Evans after that you know little spell as joint manager which I think it was Phil McNulty once regarded it as called it the kindest sacking in football history to allow him to just sit there for three months and then tell him he's got to go um but yeah I think Julio deserves credit but again he's not the first Liverpool manager who's taken on the job and it's ended up making him unwell that's the pressure of it that's what happens I think it's always hard to judge a number of Liverpool managers because the context at the time's been against them, so to speak. So, like, say, Shankly came in, they were in the second division, he came through, he brought them up to this top team in the country, he was able to pluck players from, like, a goalkeeper and a midfielder from lower league Scunthorpe and make them two of the best players in the country. Then later on, he could go and make record signings and Liverpool were this best team. If he'd stayed, he probably would have won a European Cup. He would have definitely won the trophies. It's easier when you're a manager, when you're following on from that success and the players already have that mentality to keep it going as long as you don't become overawed by it, as we've seen in recent years, say, with David Moyes and all the Manchester United managers that have followed Ferguson. Um, with Fagan, he's a hard one to judge because he wasn't really there long enough. And obviously with Heysel and that, I think he'd already decided he was going to go, but he sort of went out the back door, so to speak, the attention went off him. You almost forget that he did win Liverpool's first treble the year before. And with Dalglish, his Liverpool team, they were ageing, weren't they? Like He was did brilliantly, won the double, then built this great attack in 87-88, won a couple of leagues, and then Sooness sort of came in at the back end of it when his best players were getting old. And you're not really put Dalglish to that test of, could he have rebuilt that team? Could he have made them a great team the way um, Shankly and Paisley had done before having to rebuild teams? Obviously, he went to Blackburn, won the Premier League, but it was Jack Walker's millions where he could just sign whoever he wanted for whatever he wanted. And then you're looking at, say, Benitez, Poulier, Evans, Rogers. Granted, they've made some big signings, they've made some record signings, but it's not the extent where they've been backed fully by the board to get whoever they wanted. They've all got their stories of, oh, I wanted this player, but it didn't happen because the board were against me for this one. So like Evans, you could say Teddy Sheringham. Rafa, we can list players. I think we do on the website, don't we? Every few months, all these players Rafa missed out on. Julia was the same. Whereas Klopp can sit down and go, I want Virgil van Dijk. I want Alison Becker. Here's 150 million. And he's made his team the best on the planet. Granted, he's had to pick them up from mid-table in the Premier League to this great team. Um, but I'd say because of what he's doing at the moment, if you can carry on, he's definitely in the top three, as the other two have just said now, with Shankly, with Paisley. And it's then, well, how do you judge the next man? If the next man comes in and he, he does Paisley sort of success and he just keeps it going, wins trophy after trophy, league titles, European Cups, is he better than what Klopp's done or is it an easier job for him because he's got that winning mentality already there? Uh, is it if Steven Gerrard, for example, does his status with the club already make him this great legend? It's hard. Yeah, so it makes it so hard to judge on what you define a great manager by. Uh, if the tools are already there, surely it's easier to already keep it going. But then you've got the pressure from outside too. So for all those reasons alone, Shankly is the one who started it all. Shankly is the person we still talk about. Shankly is the one you say Klopp is like he is doing the Shankly job, so Shankly's got to be the greatest. Yeah, and I suppose on the point you make there, Theo, actually, certainly I can really only talk of the the modern era managers because that's all the time I've watched football. You look at actually the successes and the achievements they've brought to the club. Gerard Houllier winning the treble in 2001. Yes, it wasn't obviously the biggest trophies around, but he still won three trophies in one season. Benitez in his first year pulling off the miracle of Istanbul before Klopp last season gets 97 points in the league and also Gorsty wins a Champions League title as well. 
Yeah, I think that 2001 season kind of gets a little bit overlooked uh, for whatever reason. It was wasn't it wasn't the best team to watch on the eye. It was um, a team that was very functional, very um, machine like it in the way it went about its business. A very good defence. Stefan Ancho and Sammy Appear with Jamie Gallagher at left back. Uh, Marcus Babalu, who was a fantastic player before he was struck down with his illness. Um, so it was a really good defensive setup, and then you had players like Didi Yaman, uh, Danny Murphy, uh, Stephen Gerrard was just coming through. And then the brilliance of, of Michael Owen and Robbie Fowler alongside Emil Heskey, all three of them three scored goals in that season. Um, sometimes I think that year and that team and that era kind of gets a little bit overlooked because um, they didn't win the, the Premier League. I mean, they got to, what was it, quarterfinal of the, of the Champions League and uh, Julio coined the phrase, they needed 10 games from greatness. Um, they were a little bit unfortunate against Leverkusen there. They went on to be beaten finalists that season. Um, that era for Liverpool was, was a great one where they were um, they routinely beat Manchester United. They had a very good record in Mayside derbies. Um, just seemed to be when it was when they were ready to take the next step. They just it was a little bit of a misstep and kind of took them a little bit backwards, um, which was the story for for quite a few managers. Probably similar thing could be said of Rafa Benitez as well. Guy, who did they beat in that FA Cup final in two thousand and one? Cheers, Doily. <laughs> 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 but but I, I I suppose like as I said to to Gorsty Doyle in terms of the achievements each of those managers I mean Rafa Benitez doing what he did in two thousand and five with that group of players sort of it, it defies belief in many ways doesn't it It does I mean imagine what Rafa could have done if he didn't spend half his time arguing with everybody that's what <laughs> I always thought I mean having been covering Liverpool at that time I can tell you now that it was literally. Do you remember the um, I'm coaching and training my team press conference? The other the other lads remember that. Yeah, I was there for that one. And it was, we were like sat in front of him because he actually did it in the briefing. He came and sat down. We were like looking at him going. Every question that went to him was exactly the same, same answer. And to the point where somebody, one of the lads, wasn't me, said, look, it'd be a dereliction of our duty not to ask what exactly is going on here because we keep on asking you these questions, then you keep on giving us the same answer. You know, is there anything wrong? Is there anything troubling you? His reply was, "I'm just concentrating on coaching and training the team." So, <laughs> I mean, he was he was a proper narc, wasn't he? At times, quite. But great manager. But it's like, how do you judge a manager? It goes back to the the original point in terms of actual managing a team in terms of tactics. Has anybody been better than Benitez for Liverpool? Probably not. Has anybody been better than Shankly for motivating the fans? Probably not. Has anybody been better at just simply getting a team out there and winning and building another team and then another team than Bob Paisley? Probably not. So they've all got the attributes. And of course, the interesting thing is there, I just mentioned three things that possibly Klopp could end up being because he's certainly done at least one and a half of them. So there is a, an argument that it may end up being that Jurgen Klopp, if he sticks around and wins more stuff, could end up being the greatest ever manager in Liverpool's history, which considering not so much the state of the club when he took over, because it wasn't that bad a state, but considering the team that he took over and the little battles that he had to win, first of all, he's just he's just won everybody over by being a success. And that's how you do it in football. No one complains if you're winning. That's why no one's complaining about Liverpool. Well, unless you support all the other teams. No, and I suppose the point there that, that Doyle raises on, on Jurgen Klopp there in terms of energising the fans is probably one of the th- the first things that he was able to do when he came into the hot seat. And probably you look on it, on what he's doing right now, maybe one of the most important. Yeah, it's 
almost a throwback to managers of old Jurgen Klopp. You look how he connected with the club. Uh, he said the right thing straight away from the very first time he sat down and was interviewed by the club, like we all know about turning doubters into believers, those quotes and stuff. At the time, thought, oh, that's a great soundbite, but can he actually do it? Like, did anyone really sit down and listen to those words and think five years down the line, Liverpool would have won the European Cup and they'd be a maximum six points away from winning the Premier League? Jurgen Klopp probably did, but we've heard Liverpool managers say similar, think, oh, it'll take five years and then we'll have the success. And it's just been a continued success of so close and yet so far, whether it's managers getting ill, star players getting sold or owners being a bit dodgy and just the club falling apart at the seams as a result. Um, but Liverpool, it's such a fan base. This fan base is so strongly connected to the club that if you connect with them, it's great and it all can take off and it's fine. Like Benitez, he had the connection with the fans, but it was a completely different way of connecting with the fans. That was from winning the European Cup. And there was such a respect there because of what he could do with players like Jimmy Traore, Igor Bishkan. Like these should not be Champions League winners, and they are. But then you look at the other end of the scale, Roy Hudson just didn't connect with the club, um, didn't connect with the fans, and he was gone within six months Where when the ownership had changed and everything. So Klopp's done the right things from early doors. And looking at it, it's probably the best mixture, isn't he, of all these great managers we're talking before. Sure, he's got his faults. I think most great managers, he's a bit too stubborn at times. But he's not really got burnt, so to speak, from making mistakes. He's getting all this success on the pitch. The players love him. The fans love him. And he just keeps finding a way to win games and get the best out of everything. It's interesting you said that about Hodgson, because if you speak to any of the players who've played for him, what, so it's been 10 years, nearly, well, nine and a bit years since he left Liverpool. Well, the players that played under him, have any of them ever said a bad word about him? Ever? Not really, have they? Can't think, you, can't, you can't think of no. any. And it's because, OK, the results on the pitch, you know, there was an awful lot going on at the club at the time. At the time. But I almost think Hodgson would have got a lot more time, as Theo said, if he connected with the fans. I mean, he was given some, like, I remember there was one easy question, you know, what, what, what Anfield, he had a first home game at, in Europe. He says, what are Anfield nights like at? European nights like Anfield, are they the best? And he went, well, they're very good. He says, but they're very good at Inter Milan and Old Trafford and all these things. I mean, it was an open goal. He had to say was, yeah. That was it. His Liverpool manager had to say was, yeah. But I think because of that, he always looks as though he's looking after Roy Hodgson first and the brand first and then Liverpool second, which is, might explain why he's been to so many clubs in his career. Yeah, I'm not sure he's going to make the make the uh, Hall of Fame in the end. And the, the list of great <laughs> Liverpool managers, really interesting and great to talk through them all, guys. Really appreciate it. I think we've come to the conclusion that you can make your own conclusion, really. And if you want to share your thoughts with us, either in the the YouTube section or over in our Blood Red podcast, uh, yeah, Blood Red podcast Facebook group, if you want to head there and let us know what you think, that'd be uh, very interesting to see what everyone's different takes are. But gentlemen, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you to you guys for listening in as well until next time here though from blood red bye for now you've been listening to the blood red podcast from the liverpool echo